the Russian Mighty Wind and the uh, speaking tongues, all the events, right? So, remember, we kind of broke up the sermon. Miracle, tongues of fire, Russian Mighty Wind, all that. Peter stands up, gives a sermon. You're going to see that over and over again in Acts. Um, we broke up the sermon because we just didn't have enough time, but uh, he started, basically he just quoted the prophet Joel all the way down through verse 21. And so he quoted that, the prophet Joel, and now he's going to start preaching to the people uh, that are in the crowd that have seen this mighty work of God, that have seen all this going on. And so he quoted, uh, he, he quoted the prophet Joel, which said, you know, in the last days, God's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters are going to dream dreams and have visions and there's going to be blood, fire, vapor, smoke, earthquakes. We talked about all of those things. We kind of discussed all of those things. And so what, he, what he's going to do now is he's going to start preaching and the, con- the content of his sermon is going to be about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. So it's very important that we don't, you cannot separate uh, the events that take place, the miracles that take place from the explanation of the miracles in the sermons that the apostles preach. Okay, does that make sense? What I mean to say is... You, you know, we all talk about the miracles that have, are taking place, and it says that the apostles are going to even do more miracles. We're going to see a lot of them in Acts. Uh, but every time there's a sign, every time there's a wonder, every time there's a miracle, uh, there is a sermon that explains it, and it's always explained in the in terms of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. So, what does that tell you? It tells you that. Christ's ministry is continuing through the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, through His apostles. Okay? This is not the, we talked about this a little last week, but the sound like a rushing mighty wind and the tongues of fire and the speaking in the other languages and all those kind of things, that is not something that is, is totally separate from the ministry of Jesus. That is the fulfillment of what Jesus came to do, to fulfill all those Old Testament prophecies. That was those Jewish men and women coming from all those different countries. We read that in Acts chapter 2 last week. And all hearing the gospel, mighty works of God in their own language is the fulfillment of God saying, I will bring you back to the land. I will bring you back to the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem will be a place where, you know, my presence dwells and you will. The fulfillment of that is we saw that in Acts chapter 2. And that's what Peter's going to explain. Okay, he's going to explain that. So let's just read, let's say, I don't know, the first three verses and we'll go from there. Is there any questions? I, I knew you was waiting right there I to knew, ask me a I question. Knew. You, I know you explained it last week, but I didn't write it down and I got my pen now. In verse, in chapter, not chapter, but verse 17, it says, And your sons and daughters shall prophesy. And I know you said that prophesying was not like foretelling the future. So what does that mean? Yeah, well, sometimes it is. But in the context of what he's talking about, the Old Testament prophets more often than not did not tell the future. They just told what God said. This is what, over and over again, I'm going to turn it off. Over and over again, the prophets would say, let's say the Lord. And they would call the people to repent. They would call the people to... Uh, you know, turn back to God. They would tell them, God told me to tell you, 
that you, you know, need to turn to him or whatever. It wasn't always about when it's saying that when it's saying that your sons and daughters are prophesying dream dreams and all that kind of thing. It's not saying that, you know, everybody's going to be endowed with the power to see the future. What it says, what it's saying is that the word of God will dwell in every believer. Okay. So no, no longer you will no longer. Well, you need a prophet to tell you what God's so, word says. So basically, just double preach. Well, yeah, in a sense, you could say that. I mean, whenever you witness to somebody at Starbucks, you're, you're preaching. As far as I'm concerned, I mean, you're saying right. Yeah, that you know, the spirit of the Lord came upon the prophets, and the word says the word of the Lord came to whoever, and then he prophesied. The, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Well. In the new age, with the Spirit of God dwelling in you, the Word of the Lord has come. And we have the Word of the Lord. As he says, I'll write it on your heart. And, of course, we have the written Word, the Word through Jesus and His apostles. And, and the Old Testament as well. Does that make sense? That's what I'm saying, you know, that we will preach because this is the Word of the Lord. Right. When, a, when if you, like today, when we go into service and Brother Eddie stands up in the pulpit and he opens God's Word and he says, this is what the Lord says... He's prophesying as from a biblical That's sense. What see what I mean? Yes. He's not telling you, hey, in two weeks, your redheaded cousin is going to come see you. He he's, exactly. he's telling you this is what God says. See, that was and, a good question. And he's reading it from the Word. That was a good question. That was a good question. Well, when you go back to when it talks about them speaking in tongues and the Pentecostal people in these days say that they have the gift of speaking in tongues, what are they doing? Have you ever been in one of their churches? Oh, oh I have too. And first time I took Jennifer and Dustin, Dustin was terrified. I mean, up under the pew, terrified, right on my leg. But I actually have an answer for this. I can actually answer this one. Unless there are two witnesses that can, can interpret. I know they are. I mean, I've read it. But, but most of the time, they're not there. You know, like they don't have to. And it's no, false. Yeah. And they're just mumbling. But why are they doing that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why they're doing it. I mean, uh, I don't know. Like I said, we'll get to the tongues deal. But like I said, in Acts, there's only three places where tongues are spoken. And I can make a good, really good case that at least two of those are known languages. The third one doesn't say either way, so it's kind of a... I couldn't prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, but I can make a good case from... It's three times in Acts, two times in Corinthians, and I can make a good case from four out of five of those times that it's, that it's known languages. So, I mean, if you ask me... I, I mean, you have to ask one of them what they're doing. I don't know. Oh, I have. Because, I mean, that... As far as I'm concerned, it's a blank spot in the recording. I mean, if I don't know what you said, if you don't know what you said, okay. Well, I mean, that was great, you know, whatever. But if if I don't know what you said, it doesn't help me. And if you don't know what you said, I don't know how it helps you either. You know, so I don't know. But that's really not what the sermon's about. The reality, what he's going to say here, remember, don't separate the miracle from the explanation of the miracle. Okay? A lot of people do that. Peter stands up and the people are asking the same question you just asked. What is this? What is this we're seeing? Are these guys drunk? What are they doing? 
And Peter stands up and he's going to explain it by talking about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. First he quotes Joel's prophecy. We read that last week. And then he says in verse 22, he said, Ye men of Israel, after he has just quoted Joel's prophecy, says, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did him in the midst of you, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of him. And then he's going to quote David. The point of the point of the text is when he gets, he's going to explain all who Jesus is till he gets to verse 38, and then he's going to tell them what I want you to do. Now, Peter said, and that's the famous verse. I'm sure we'll spend a lot of time on that. Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sin. But he says that, look, he's explaining what's going on first. It's like the Messiah was verified among you. You've been waiting on this Messiah for since Old Testament days when the prophets said that the Messiah would come, the suffering servant in Isaiah would come, and he would suffer. He would do these miracles. The lame would be healed. The blind would see. The good news would be preached to the poor. All these things were said to have happened. And that's exactly what has happened. Jesus of Nazareth came and did all these things. And instead of holding him up as Messiah, instead of instead of agreeing with the Father who, uh, it says, what, approved him? Is that what it says? Shelby, who was, which God did him. The, yes, a man approved of God among you. Instead of, instead of uh, holding this man up as your Messiah, instead you took him and you crucified him. Crucified him. Now, look at what Peter's doing. He's standing, I, I mean, I don't know if he's standing on a soapbox or if he's standing on, you know, he, uh, where everybody could see him, but he's addressing thousands of people because at the end of this, th- 3,000 is going to be saved. But he's addressing thousands of people, all these people in the city, and he's not preaching. He's not preaching like, well, you know, we've done this thing and, you know, sometimes we just get a little whatever. He's pointing his finger at these people. He said, whom you took, you you crucified him. You're the one. You men of Israel, you listen to me. This is what you've done. God sent his Messiah and he was verified among you by miracles and signs and good works and all these things. And instead of hailing him as king, instead of bowing down before him, you took him and you crucified him. Can you imagine what these guys were feeling? You know, I mean, you can imagine what it's like to be out in the congregation and uh, the preacher come, you know, and, and says something that just, you know, hits you right right in the living room. You know what I mean? It's uh, I can imagine that it, it, it kind of got their attention. It was like shock value. So many people don't like that today. Uh, I was in the in the in the in the chapel in the, at the hospital, and the guy he said he was telling me this story. Deal. He was a preacher, and the guy said he said you're a preacher. He said yes, sir. He said are you a good preacher? And he said some people think so till I knock on that door. <laughs> I know, I know. All right, so he said, he said, you did it. You crucified him and God vindicated him. It said it was not possible. It was not possible for him to be held by death because it was not possible that he should be holding up at the end of verse 34. Pains of death there uh, is translated in other places as birth pains. You've seen those in maybe Matthew 24 and all those. It's like, I guess you, a lot of you ladies know what birth pains feel like. Uh, 
But it says, it says, whom God hath raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. it it's almost to me like when those birth pains start, you know, and you're getting ready to have a baby. Uh, it's like you ain't really going to be able to hold it in. You know what I mean? <laughs> I just, you don't even want to know what picture just ran through my mind. But like, how many of y'all had to actually drive fast to the hospital when you had kids and all that stuff? Like, for me, it was, they, they scheduled every one of mine. You know what I mean? Dana had high blood pressure. Did, we didn't have to drive fast on any of them, did we? Yeah, we did. Which one? No. Well, no, Jake. Like they told us, be here at eight. We're gonna yeah, induce you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and we thirty minutes from the hospital. Be like, just hold that joker in. We'll get there. You know, <laughs> hold it. It's like, no. Once it starts, it's coming, Jack. You ain't finna. Yeah, you can't hold it in. And that's what he's talking about. He said he loosed him from the pains of death because it wasn't possible. Once Jesus died, once the Son of God died, it's not possible that he was going to stay dead. It was not possible that death could grab hold of him and keep hold of him and not let him out. It wasn't possible because he is Lord over death. He is uh, God over death as much as anything else. And so it says the, the one that you crucified, the one that you killed, he says God raised him up and loosed him from the pains of death. Okay, no more birthing imagery is getting in my brain. <laughs> Okay, Jesus, I'm trying to hurry because I know we're going to spend a lot of time on verse 38. Uh, it says, uh, verse 25 through 31 basically is Peter preaching. Notice, Peter's not just up there preaching. He's preaching from the text of Scripture. He's quoting the Psalms. He's quoting the Psalms. And he's, what he's going to say is Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that God made to David. Uh, David promised in the Old Testament, he promised David that some, a seed of yours would be on the throne forever. And Peter is going to say that Jesus ascended to heaven and sat down on David's throne. He is now ruling and reigning on David's throne. He is the fulfillment of that. Look what it says, verse 25. It says, For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope because thou will not leave my soul in hell. David's talking about his own soul. And this is why. Neither will thou suffer thy holy one, which is what Isaiah always uses for God. The term he always used for God. But here it's used, it's used for Christ, the holy one, to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou make me full of joy with thy countenance. He said, verse 29 says, men and brethren, this is him explaining what he just read in the Old Testament. Men and brethren, let me freely speak to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us today. He said, David wasn't talking about himself because he's still dead. He says, therefore, being a prophet, David was a prophet. And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that one of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He said, David knew beforehand that God had made him a promise that one of his heirs would sit on the throne. So David, seeing that, foretold that Christ would rise from the dead. You got it? See that? So... That's why I, I love this. 
My, one of the passions that I have is how Christ is spoken of all through the Old Testament. And this is Peter explaining how this is uh, it's Psalm 16, 8 through 11, what he's quoting here. And it applies to Jesus. Uh, it applies to what Jesus has done. It's saying, David said, look, I'm, I'm happy. I'm joyful. I don't have to worry. He said, I know that you're not going to leave me. Because you did not let your Holy One see decay. And, P- and Peter says, look, David's not talking about himself right there. Because, look, his grave's right over there. He, he is decaying. I mean, he's still in his grave. He said he was a prophet and he knew that God had promised him a seed that would sit on his throne that would never decay. So he was foretelling in Psalm 16, he was foretelling the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See that? Mm-hmm. Any questions? Okay. So he's seeing, verse 31, he's seeing, David's seeing this before David seeing that Jesus would rise from the dead. He spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. Now his soul left in the hell, there is the grave. It's not like the burning the, the word is, is, is Hades, the, the place of the dead. I will not leave, it's not like... You know, I, I'm not one of these believers that talk about Jesus going to hell when he was crucified. That's ridiculous. I mean, I, we could talk about that later, but that's not the word that's used here. And so he's saying David was prophesying. So think about it now. Peter's standing up and all this miracle has taken place. Russian mighty wind speaking in unknown tongues, uh, uh, tongues unknown to them. Uh Tongues of fire. People say, what is going on? Jesus, Jesus, Peter stands up and he tells them about the crucified and risen Messiah. Then he takes an Old Testament text and applies it to the risen Messiah to show them that this this, uh, is not just a new invention. Peter didn't stand up and say, hey, uh, we got a new religion for you guys. We got something new is going on here and uh, y'all all need to come believe with us and all the stuff that you've been taught all these years is not right. He didn't say that at all. He said this is the fulfillment of all that was come before. This is the fulfillment of what David saw, of what Abraham saw, of what all those, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is still moving and has fulfilled his promises in Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Man, y'all are so quiet and sleepy looking. Um, it says neither did his flesh see corruption, but he was beaten. Does that mean like his flesh didn't rot? Right. That's exactly what it means. <clears throat> it wasn't decayed. Okay? Apostles were witness to the resurrection. This Jesus God raised up whereof we are all witnesses. And then, this is really amazing. Therefore, being by the right hand of God... Exalted, talking about Jesus, exalted at the right hand of God, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, He has shed forth this which you now see in here. Who is who is He? The Holy Ghost. No. Nope. Read it. Let's read it again. Therefore, by the right hand of God, exalted, 32, this Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God, exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this, which you now see in here. Jesus Christ. So, who produced 
Who sent the Spirit? Jesus. Jesus did. The Father, the Father sent the Spirit, and Jesus sent the Spirit. Okay, so this thing is a this thing that we see this Russian mighty wind this 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 event that is taking place that has captured everyone's attention in the crowd. This is not something separate from the ministry of Jesus. This is the fulfillment of the ministry of Jesus. He says Jesus was exalted. He was risen from the dead. He was ascended into heaven. He sat down on the throne of power on David's throne on the right hand of the Father. The Father. Uh, uh, give, gave him the gift of the Holy Spirit, and I'll explain that in a minute. It doesn't mean that he didn't have it before, or have him before. It just means that Jesus laid down the prerogatives of deity when he was here on earth, which means he did all his miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit rather than his own. He was still God. It didn't mean he stopped being God or anything like that. And so he was exalted to the highest place. And then the Son has poured out he has poured out the Spirit on all these, on all flesh, on all believers. Make sense? Do you see how the coming of the Spirit is connected to the ascending of Jesus? Jesus said, if I go away, unless I go away, the Holy Spirit won't come. He said, so the Holy Spirit coming in power, fulfillment of the promise, is, the, is connected to Jesus' ascension and His sitting down at the right hand of power. Okay? Y'all with me? Man, am I boring you to death? Okay. Okay, so Joel's prophecy here, verse 33, where he tells us that Jesus has shed forth this, which you now see in here. Joel's prophecy, which Peter quoted up until verse 21, was fulfilled by Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension. Okay, you see? Makes sense? What he's saying here is that Jesus is God. Jesus is the divine Messiah that has fulfilled the promises that God has made. For David, and he's continuing, for David is not ascended into the heavens. He's saying body and soul, like Jesus was ascended and sat down on the right hand of power. David is not ascended into heaven, but the, but he saith himself, David said himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou upon my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. This is Psalm 110 that he's quoting again. Jesus is, he's saying David's not seated at the right hand of the Father. It's Jesus who's seated at the right hand of the Father. Pretty self-explanatory. Okay, then here, these last three verses, uh, I don't know how much further we'll get, but <clears throat> I'm sure this is where the questions are going to come in. <clears throat> now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Oh wait, I missed one. 36. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Okay? He is exalted. He is Lord and Christ. Lord and, you know... The word Lord is, is kurios in, in the New Testament, and it's often used, it's the same word in the Greek Old Testament that was translated, they would translate Yahweh. So he's saying that Jesus, he's proclaiming Jesus' divine nature. He is both God and Messiah, this Jesus that you crucified. He starts out in the beginning saying, 
God sent him and proved him, and you killed him. And then he quotes Old Testament Scripture, Old Testament prophecy that points to Jesus, proves that the Old Testament foretold that Jesus was coming, and then he ends by saying, the Father here, the one y'all worshiping, He made Jesus Lord and Christ. He has sent Him as Lord and Christ. He gave us Himself in the form of a man to come and, and be amongst us, and you killed Him. You crucified Him. So you can imagine they were pretty they were pretty convicted. The Holy Spirit was uh, had just descended, and so the Holy Spirit was coming and it was convicting their hearts. And then verse 37 says they were pricked at their heart. The convicting power. Uh, it says, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? How do we get out of this? But here's the thing. Peter's going to tell them what to do in verse 38. But even now, I mean, can you imagine a worse crime, a worse sin than God sending His Son and then instead of embracing Him, loving Him, uh, turning to Him, you killed Him, you crucified Him, you murdered Him, you know, in the, in the worst possible way. But even now, even now, there is a way back. Even now, there's a door of grace that's open. Even now, there's mercy to be had. Even He's staring at these thousands of people and He has basically accused them of murdering God's Son. But even now, they ask Him, well, what can we do about it? And He's going to tell them that there's a way forward. There's a way that you can get into uh, grace with God. There's a way that you can come to salvation. And that way is verse 38, which is quoted by all kind of different people for all kind of different reasons. Verse 38 says, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sin, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And it says, And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourself from this untoward or corrupt generation. Okay, so let the questions begin. Repent and be baptized. You think he left something out? Did he leave something out? They had to proclaim that Jesus is the Christ. Yeah, it seems like he left faith out, didn't he? All right. I guess I'll ask the questions because y'all so quiet. <laughs> Baptism necessary for salvation? No. no. Why? Didn't he just say repent and be baptized? But the water can't save us. We've got to be saved. No, no. I, I agree with you. And you're right. But I want to know how do we explain it from this text? I mean, I, you are absolutely right. Baptism not necessary. It's not, it's not what saves you. I like to say that baptism is necessary. Because it's an act of obedience, just like obeying God is necessary. But it's not, it's, not, it's not part of salvation. It's not part of what saves you. Does that make sense? Right, it's a, some, it's a commandment. Then. It's a command, yes. It's an act of obedience. Yeah, two yes. totally separate things. Being saved and being baptized are not the same thing at all. I, I agree. I agree completely. What I want to know is how do we explain it from this text? Because you've got a whole host of people... That this is all, it's the only one that got memorized. It's supposed to be that baptism is from a man. I mean, you're actually baptized from a man in water. It's God, it's not a supernatural thing. Okay. 
It's not a change. It's a supernatural. Yes, I agree with you. I agree with you. I think it's not a change. It's not. We're not receiving the Holy Spirit. No. You know what that's like. But you are baptizing the Holy Spirit when you're saved. I'm sorry, sir. This by this text is saying you're not receiving the Holy Spirit till you're baptized. Some people have taken it that way. Yes, yes, and that's where the questions lie because everything that y'all said, I agree with you. I mean. We know under we're here at Christ Church. We know that we you've heard us <laughs> preach from texts. You know the Bible. You just John three sixteen. If that's the only verse you know, then you can see that you know the deal. Something's not adding up. The problem is you need to know you need to know from this text because there are whole hosts of people in different denominations, different groups of belief systems that this is the only one they're going to quote. Everything that y'all said, I can say yeah. But Peter said, repent, and be baptized. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. I mean, the, what, what we have to see is the nature of baptism. Baptism is, and it's a strange word. The word baptize just means to dump, means to immerse, to dip. I mean, the same words used of like dishes that go into the water. You know, it just means to immerse in, in water. And so baptism was something, and it's used in different places in Scripture to talk about ritual washings. It's used uh, in Hebrews chapter 6, which I preached on this morning. It's used at the beginning of there to, for purification, washings. The Jews that Peter were talking to already knew all about baptisms and immersion. And it was a symbol. It was a sign of being purified when a Jewish person came to the temple and they were unclean for some reason. They, whatever, they had to go through this ritual of Baptism, ritual washings to cleanse themselves for the sacrifice. They knew that the, the water didn't really cleanse them from anything. It was a symbol of their cleansing before God. And it was faith in the sacrifice they were offering, the bull, the goat, the whatever, that actually forgave their sins. So the point for him to say on that day, speaking to thousands of people, to say, okay, guys, you need to repent and you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Jesus, being baptized wouldn't have been a shock to them. I mean, they knew all about it. It was part of the Jewish way of life. It was part of religious life. It was part of temple life was to go through these ritual washings. And if you wanted to become a Jewish uh, convert from paganism, you had to go through a ritual of baptism to, to do that. They would have understood completely what this symbol meant. They would have understood completely what the sign meant. The rub was, now you're going to be baptized in the name of Jesus. You see what I mean? He's saying, you're, you're going to lay down all of this. He's saying, you're impure. You're impure. You're unclean before God. And the only way you can get clean is through the name of Jesus now. And the temple's not going to do it for you. The bulls and the goats and all that's not going to do it anymore for you. So baptism itself was a sign 200 years before Jesus was born. It was a sign when Jesus himself was baptized. And it was a sign. It's a sign now. It's always been a sign in Jewish life, in Hebrew culture, in Judaism. And it was a sign here. He was saying you are going to identify yourselves with Jesus. No longer are you going to be 
identifying yourselves with the temple or with the sacrifices or with the whatever, you're going to be identifying yourself. You're publicly making a uh, public statement that I am being uh, cleansed and purified in the name of Jesus. That makes sense? See? See what I'm saying? And what's going to happen is he says at the very end of this speech, he says, and at the very end of this chapter, he says, and all of those who received his word were baptized in the name of Jesus. All those who believed, all those who trusted. Does that make sense? So in, in uh, the rest of Acts, you're going to see it's almost like repentance, faith, baptism are used interchangeably throughout Acts. Sometimes, right, right here, Peter says, repent, be baptized. Other times, uh, in the very next chapter, Peter's going to say, believe and you'll receive the forgiveness of sins. And then in what, chapter 16, the jailer comes to Paul and says, what must I do? He says, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. So it's almost like they're used interchangeably. And the, the reason for that is because you, you wouldn't be able to, if a person came to me now and said, Jason, I want to be saved. What do I need to do to be saved? I would give him the gospel. You need to repent of your sin. You need to trust in Christ. Okay? Now that we've done that, first act of obedience is baptism. Well, I'm not getting baptized. Okay? What that does, that red flag. Something ain't right. Okay? A person who's not, a, not willing to submit themselves to the rite of baptism, the ordinance of baptism, is a red flag. Does that mean that, oh, the person can't be saved because... No, it's not what it means. What it means is that a person's faith changes them in such a way that they should be willing to be a witness before others to what Christ has done for them. Does that make sense? And so, if, if for instance, Miss Judy was to come up and say, Jason, I'm ready to be saved. Okay, we do the deal. Trust in Christ for our salvation. All to Him I owe. Repent of our sins. We do that. And I say, now Miss Judy, the first act is baptism. And she says, oh, I'm not going to do that. Well, I, I can't say saved or lost. I can't say whatever. But I know there's a problem. Something, Something's not right. We were so happy when Mr. Benny said the Lord, uh, he was saved and, and never heard anything about baptism. And so... I would never say, or you're saying you're lost or whatever, but red flag. He said, Mr. Benny come one day and said, the Lord woke him up in the middle of the night and said, son, you need to be baptized. And of course he was baptized, baptized last Sunday. And so see, uh, God's not going to let his children just go blindly disobey. He's not going to do that. He's going to, he's going to make a way. And so that's why we see them kind of used interchangeably. It was unheard of for a person in the first century to say, I'm going to believe in this Jesus guy, but I'm not going to be baptized. So that's why they're kind of, sometimes they're kind of synonymously used together. Does that make sense? Y'all understand? Baptism was a sign 200 years before Jesus was born. It was a sign when Jesus was walking the earth, and it's a sign now. Okay? Everybody understand? So was it a sign like circumcision was a sign? Is that, I mean, yes. Okay. Yes. Both of them were, both baptism and circumcision are signs of the covenant okay. that we're in. Okay? okay. Makes sense? Mm -hmm. You weren't saved by your circumcision. Right. I promise you. Uh, yeah, women will be messed up. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> And so the other question is, you got a whole other group of people that say when you're baptized, you got to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And that's the formula that you use. 
We don't baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit like Jesus said. You've got to do it in the name of Jesus. You've got to say the words in the name of Jesus. And if you don't say the words in the name of Jesus, then your baptism isn't valid. Is that what Peter meant when he preached this sermon? No. 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 In the name of someone meant by his authority, by his power. In the very next very next chapter, let's see if I wrote it down. Yeah, if you just look at Acts chapter 4 verse 7, when they brought Peter and John into the temple or into the Sanhedrin and was going to try to get them to quit preaching, he says, uh, he says, and when they... When they, when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? It's by whose authority do you think that you're doing those things? What Peter was telling them was, you know, I know you all, you all know about baptism. You all know about these ritual washings of purification. You all know what it means to be unclean before God and to go through this cleansing ritual that we call baptism. But what you need to understand is that you need to be cleansed by the power of Christ, by the authority of Christ, by the name of Christ. What he was saying was, you guys, if you're going to come and be in relationship with God, if you're going to come and be right before God, you're going to have to do it in the, in the name of Christ, by the authority of Christ and by the power of Christ. You're going to identify yourselves with Christ. Does that make sense? Is there any questions? Man, y'all are so quiet. Okay, last thing is... What's the other question? For the remission of sin. Yeah, that's, there's a whole other group that says uh, the baptism is for the remission of sin. And if you're not actually baptized, believing that baptism is for the remission of sin, then you're not really baptized and you're not really saved and you're not really whatever. Okay, so here's the thing. What does it mean to be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sin? Does that mean baptism in the name of Jesus? Remit, you know what remit means? It means forgive, take away. Does that remit your sin? No. Okay, why? Because you just answered that question a second ago. You said in the name, he's the one that has the authority over your sin. So he's the one that has the remission of your sin. It's in through his name, through his authority, that the sin is forgiven. That that's exactly right. I, I agree. I'm looking for something that I wrote down for the forgiveness of sin. Uh, for the forgiveness of sin can either mean it can mean one of two things. For the remission of sin, excuse me. It could mean in order to have your sins forgiven. Or it could mean because your sins are forgiven. Let me let me illustrate this. Uh, man, what's the verse? Then Peter said, "Then repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sin. In order to get the remission of your sin, or because of the remission of your sin. Think of it this way: If I if I put a wanted poster up here and said, Danny Austin, wanted for bank robbery." Does that mean I want Danny in order to commit bank robbery? No, it means I want him because he's already committed bank robbery. That's what for means. The word for can mean all kinds of different things in different contexts. So anyone coming to this particular text and saying this is what it means is bringing something to the text. What we need is we need a place where Peter is talking about how to get your sins remitted or forgiven. And it's recorded by Luke where he actually spells it out. There's a principle when you read your Bible 
The clear verses will always interpret the cloudy verses. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. What that means is, you got this verse here, and it could kind of be saying this, or it could be saying that. I, I really don't know. And you got this verse over here that's just plain as day, clear as the nose on your face. You never interpret the clear, you never interpret the cloudy verse by the clear verse. Yes, no. Never interpret the clear verse by the cloudy verse. Does that make sense? Man, I'm struggling big time. Y'all at least smile at me or something. Okay. You don't interpret. You interpret the the verse that I'm not sure about. You interpret it by all of Scripture. Okay? Every time a group, a denomination, or a person gets in trouble, they get in trouble when they take one single verse and make a whole doctrine out of that verse, ignoring everything else the Scripture says. Okay, so we do have a place in, uh, in Acts chapter 10, verse 43, where when you talk about for the remission of your sin, it's once again, it's Peter, the same Peter talking that was talking here. He says he's, uh, he's in Cornelius' house, and Cornelius is, about to, is being saved. Peter, God sent Peter to Cornelius. And in verse 43, or let me read 42, it says, And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of the quick and the dead. This is the reason to give to him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive what? Remission of sin. And so unless Peter is a multiple personality... Or forgot what he said four chapters earlier, five chapters earlier. We understand that he explains to us particularly how to receive the remission of your sin. And it's whosoever believes in him. Okay? And so this baptism for the remission of sin cannot mean in order to get the remission of your sin. And I can also prove that from Matthew chapter 3 verse 11 where John the Baptist was preaching. And it says, I'm not going to read it to you, but it says that John came preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. Okay? So the baptism for the remission of sin is used in multiple places in the New Testament uh, to mean that it is because of the forgiveness of sin that came through repentance and faith. Does that make sense? Now, I'm dying up here. Again, it's symbolic, just like you said, it's symbolic. Baptism, yes. Baptism is symbolic that you have. It's an yes. It's an outward sign of an inward reality. Yes. And the, the here's the thing: this is not the Jews who were listening to Peter would know that. That's why he didn't go into great depths to explain it. I mean, it was always a sign. It was always a symbol. They were being ritually baptized or immersed in water. All the time for all kind of different cleansing rituals and all all kind of things. I mean, it was part of their way of life. And so the rub was now you're going to have to be cleansed, so to speak, go through the cleansing ritual in the name of Jesus and not in the because of the temple sacrifices or whatever. That was the point. You can also take that though. Once you're baptized, you no longer have to go through that ritual again. 
Yes, it's only once. Because Jesus cleanses perfectly and completely. Totally. They had to, every time they became unclean for one reason or another, they would have to go. You know, there were different ritual washings. There were some that were just your hands, some were your feet, some were your whole body immersed. I mean, they were different for different things, but they were repetitive over and over. To be baptized in Jesus' name is to do it once, be cleansed forever, and. And that's proven in the next chapter, because chapter 3, verse 19 says, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. That's right. You don't have to keep doing it over and over again. God comes in and refreshes Himself within you. That's exactly right. Why doesn't He mention faith here? It's understood. It is? How is it understood? Because, I mean, these people had... I mean, they have prayed for Messiah their whole life. And once, you know, he, he nailed it into them when he told them, you killed him. He lives. And at that point, they had, it's, it's just understood that faith, that they were going to believe in him to cast away all their rituals. Right. And all that, that faith is understood. And they already believe in God, right? Mm -hmm. And they'd already seen the miracles and wonders that he performed. I agree. And the reality, that's true, all, those, all that's true. The reality is also that faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. What I mean by that is when you repent of your sin and dead works, you have to turn to, that's what repentance means, to turn. You have to turn to God in faith. And when you put your faith, turn to God in faith, you have to turn away from everything else. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. There is no saving faith where there is no repentance. Mm -hmm. And there is no true repentance where there is no faith. Make sense? Mm -hmm. What he was saying was, when you, I mean, just think of it in terms of being, standing here. I mean, if I'm going this way and I repent, that means I turn the other way. If I'm trusting in whatever this is and I repent, I turn and I'm repenting, turning from this, turning to that. That's all faith and repentance is. Turning away from, turning to. Now all my focus, all my hope, all my trust is in God rather than all this other stuff. So faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. There cannot exist one without another. This idea that, you know, I believe in Jesus but I'm not repenting of my sin, I'm still whatever, that is a, that is a creature that the Bible doesn't know anything about. It doesn't mention anything like that. There is no such thing as faith in Christ without repentance. And there's no such thing as true repentance without faith in Christ. Make sense? And Peter nailed that when he said that God had made Jesus both Lord and Christ. God had made Jesus both Lord and Christ. I really don't want to finish the last end of chapter 2 next week, so I'm just going to read it to you. This describes the community after they were saved. Uh, then they that gladly received the word were baptized, and the same day they were added unto them 3,000 souls. And then this describes, this describes the lifestyle of the early church. Right here, the rest of this chapter. It says, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. That's preaching, fellowship with each other. In the breaking of bread, they ate together. And in prayers, they prayed together. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things in common. 
they were together and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. Is that communism? Communalism? Does that mean all y'all need to dump your bank account into one thing and, and we'll take care of it for you? No, it's talking about Christian charity. Whoever reads that verse and says that the early church sold all their possessions and lived in like a commune is not is putting something into the verse that's not there. It's talking about people with means were so generous and so loving that they sold some of their possessions and helped as many people as had need. It's as simple as that. If you read that, we're going to read the rest of the Acts and we're going to see some more rich people. We're going to see people that own houses. We're going to see John Mark's house. And so there were people that didn't sell their stuff. There were, it was not mandatory. It was not whatever. All this is describing is the, the new heart of Christians that had things that sold their possessions to help other people in need. It's talking about Christian charity. It's not talking about living in a commune somewhere. And so, and they continued daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. They continued going to the temple and they prayed and talked about Jesus in the court of the temple. They no longer took part in the sacrifices of the temple. It's very important. There's a big movement out there that says that Jesus and the apostles were still taking part in the sacrifices. No evidence for that whatsoever. None whatsoever. In fact, they're going to get persecuted when they, uh, when the more and more they're out in the in the courtyard praying in the in the court of the temple praying and talking about Jesus. They're going to get persecuted more and more by the Jewish people for doing that. Praising God, having favor with all men, and the Lord added to the church daily as should be saved. Okay. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this day, for your blessings. Thank you for the word that you've given us. We ask that you'd be with us as we go into service. Help us to... uh...